Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And I think last time we promised you that we were finished with our Biennale episodes, but guess what? We lied. We're back with a special guest this week. Uh, on our last night in Venice back in May, we went out to dinner and were seated next to a gentleman dining by himself because, and of course, you know, just somehow I intuited that he belonged to the Biennale. And sure enough, that is how we met the acquaintance of Justin Hui, who is a participant in this year's Hong Kong collateral event, Hem Pavilion, for the rest of us there, um, which is looking at sort of the tra ongoing transformations of Hong Kong. But Justin is an architect. He's a photographer. He's done a lot of work, and we actually fell into a whole conversation with him uh, at, the, at, at dinner about really the Hong Kong development model, which urbanists like myself uh, from the West look at from afar with wonderment at things like the fact that, you know, much of Hong Kong, as you may or may not know, listeners, is technically undeveloped. I'll, I'll never forget, for example, uh, staying at a hotel on the Shenzhen border on the Shenzhen side, where I expected to see Hong Kong built directly up to the mainland crossing, only to look out on what looked like pristine wilderness of a kind of, of, of a sort. Um, and also, of course, you know, Hong Kong MTR, the, the metro system there is, is you know, uh, looked at with wonderment from afar because, of course, MTR is, owns the land or is able to control the land around its stations and so engages in some of the most interesting transit-oriented development in the world. From just talking to Justin, we learned that this is a much more complicated story. And so we're, we're having him on here to talk a bit about that and more also his work on documenting really China's interventions in Africa, which, of course, uh, a phenomenon over 15 years old at this point. And so we'd love to really sort of capture, I haven't paid attention nearly a decade since writing Aerotropolis, how that was going. And so we're, we're also really pleased to have Justin on for that as well. So, Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys again. Yeah, it's great to have you on. His very first podcast, he informed us, so it's it's great that we can we can really facilitate that for you, um, Justin. I guess as a starting point, yeah, can you can you talk a bit about it? obviously you, you're you're an architect who splits your time between New York and Hong Kong. Uh, I, I guess as a way to sort of explain to our listeners is sort of how does Hong Kong factor in your work and what are you working on now and and um, yeah, what does it mean to be sort of a Hong Kong based architect at this point in its in its history? Yeah, Hong Kong is where my father's side of the family uh, is from. So I did spend a good 14 years total living in Hong Kong, um, even though I am an American and was born in the U.S. So I do spend a lot of time between Hong Kong and the, and the United States. And I was there uh, not long ago working on a lot of projects there. So the urban, urbanism is a very big uh, interest to me why cities are the way they are, why Hong Kong is the way it is. And so a lot of these questions arise from me as um, in, through the projects that I work on, um, through photography, through uh, going up to the border a lot where, you know, there is, like you said, a lot of empty land. So the question really comes up because we all know that Hong Kong has the most expensive real estate in the world. It, it is a, a very expensive city. And so as an American living in Hong Kong for many years, that question naturally arises is why is Hong Kong so expensive? Why is it also the most vertical city in the world? We have many, many skyscrapers and towers in Hong Kong. Um, and so, yeah, it's these questions that then were the starting points to a lot of the projects that I've worked on. Yeah, I, I say I, as an American, I'm curious. Speaking of myself as American, you know, what is it the most Americans or most Western urbanists get wrong about Hong Kong? Because again, you look at it from afar, and it has several beguiling aspects: that level of verticality, that level of density, 
the, those rigorous controls on land use, which I think a lot more urbanists would like to have versus sprawl. I mean, Hong Kong is the opposite of sprawling. But again, it's a much more complicated picture. And, you know, in your explorations of it, I mean, you know, is it something we should venerate in, in that regard? Or, or where does it start to where does it start to turn around? Yeah, for those who have never been to Hong Kong, they might think that Hong Kong is this place with full of towers and skyscrapers and no land to build on. Um, but that's actually quite a, a myth because the reality is Hong Kong's land use is quite the opposite. Uh, the, the predominant area, most of Hong Kong is actually quite the opposite of what you would think Hong Kong to be. Um, it's rural. Uh, it consists mostly of villages, country parks, and certainly not the, the skyscrapers that you see so much in the images. So then that also sparked the question why it is that way it is. Why, you know, if, if Hong Kong does have a lot of land to build on, um, why, why is it so dense? Why is it so expensive? And then you start to realize that actually um, Hong Kong's density and verticality is entirely manufactured by its colonial history, its land policy um, that has shaped the way it is the way it is today. Uh, but that somehow is not captured in the visual narrative that we normally think about when it comes to when it comes to Hong Kong and, and the way we represent it. Well, just a quick aside here for our listeners as well. Could you briefly explain Hong Kong? Because I think most of us are, I've spent exactly a grand total of a week there. And I spent it, of course, on, on the main island in Central, and then also in Kowloon, which people think about. But the New Territories is an entirely separate thing. Uh, can you describe what the New Territories is? Because I believe it was, it was joined to the Special Administrative Region later than sort of the core of what we think of as Hong Kong. Yeah, so Hong Kong used to be a, it is, was a British colony, and it started as a port city for the British, <clears throat> the British to do trade with, um, with China. This was also the case with Singapore, which is why Hong Kong and Singapore, both being port cities, had a very similar land policy and, and taxation policy, which was highly reliant on leasing land out, which is why they're both cities, their taxes were so low. So it started as a British colony, first starting with Hong Kong Island, which is the island that perhaps most people are used to, are, 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 Hong Kong is known for. And then uh, later on, the, the territory expanded into the Kowloon, which is the 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 land across from Hong Kong Island. And then later on, the new territories was acquired as the third acquisition of Hong Kong's colonial territory, which consists of around 86% of Hong Kong's land mass. So when we talk about, when you hear about the new territories, it's actually the largest part of Hong Kong, as well as the, the newest acquisition of Hong Kong's colonial territory, mostly established to create a strategic defense buffer from Hong Kong, British Hong Kong to China at that time. Uh, so um, it is the largest part of Hong Kong, but it's also the one area with perhaps the fewest development, if you could call it that way. There has been, there has been a lot of people who have been living there for centuries, actually. A lot of villagers, and there's a lot of history up there. But when it comes to Hong Kong's colonial development history, it's probably the newest part of Hong Kong. Interesting. And then I guess the obvious question then is, is, you know, when it comes to that development is, how does, how does it actually work in Hong Kong? And particularly if you could tell, tell our listeners about MTR. Because I think, again, this, this vision of, um, 
And I know Hong Kong and Singapore are often held together. I'm glad you mentioned it here because I see this at the top of a lot of indices on ease of doing business in capitalism. And like they're, they're both are held up as like the world's preeminent city states. And of course, they have very different political systems with Singapore's investments in public housing. Hong Kong has an incredible housing crisis. I'll never forget, I had a, I had a speaker at Recite in Prague in 2018, Dan may remember this, uh, where he had come up with housing, I think, in concrete pipes, which struck me as perhaps the most dystopian version of urban reuse I've ever seen, actually, and spoke to some of the housing there. But, um, but yeah, how, do, you know, how does it actually work in terms of sort of like how is land released into the system and like and how is it sort of actually you know, then developed there? I mean, because of course, you know, there's like the, I believe it is the Hongs, the great family interests and sort of the mercantile interests, Swire Group and um, several of the others who are developers there. But um, yeah, I mean, is that system going to continue, uh, you know, or will it continue indefinitely, even despite, of course, the, the advocations from the Xi Jinping administration that they want to, you know, sort of bring Hong Kong closer to the fold. How do you imagine the, that ongoing transformation of Hong Kong, which is the theme, of course, of the collateral event this year? Yeah, so Hong Kong, so a bit back, going back to the thing about Singapore and Hong Kong, they both used to be British colonies that relied heavily on trade, thereby um, they had to keep taxes low in order to encourage trade in these two cities. So the only way that the government make a lot of money from leasing land out. So Hong Kong and Singapore started on a very similar um, development, but then they diverged when Singapore became independent uh, as a country and Lee Kuan Yew, the prime minister, then really changed the way land policy was managed and developed, which is why I think Singapore does not have the same issues as Hong Kong does today. Um, and that's why Hong Kong, uh, Singapore's government relies more on other f- sources of revenue rather than from land leases. Uh, Hong Kong still has a very low taxation structure, which is why they, the government still highly relies on land leases for its revenue. I believe around 30% or more of its revenue comes from leasing land out to developers or other people and groups. So therefore, um, it is kind of like a land bank in which uh, the, that the government still relies on and therefore shapes the way in which, which is why the housing prices are so high. It's because the government will then lease the land out, sell the land to, say, a developer at a very high price. The developer then will try to maximize the plot ratio of the land in order to maximize the revenue that it can get. And then selling, passing that burden of cost to then the people who buy the homes, uh, which then goes into um, other costs, such as the, the food that you buy, the, all, all the services that happen on that land. It Really, the, the real taxation is in the cost of the land itself which is how Hong Kong government has been operating for the longest time. It's, it's really fascinating given that like Hong Kong is held up as like this, you know, I mean, proponents of pure free markets love Hong Kong. I mean, I spent time writing about Paul Romer when he was proposing charter cities and like literally he pitched as like, how do we build more Hong Kongs? Like, you know, as if, as if this sort of panacea. Uh, I'll let Dan get an, an ed, a word in edgewise, but the, the last question I'll ask for now is, is Justin, when I was, when I was researching writing Aerotropolis, 
again, like almost 15 years ago. I mean, there was, there was even then in 2007, 2008 timeframe, there was efforts to like sort of pull Hong Kong back into the fold in the Pearl River Delta as part of a constellation of cities there, the, the proposed bridge to Zhuhai and thinking about the airport system. I think when I was there, the one week I was there, there was a whole proposal to like link together the various airports in the region with high-speed rail and build a whole system. How is that continuing there? Is like, has that been realized to some extent again with the ongoing with, the, with Xi Jinping and, and, the, and the PRC trying to like exert more control in Hong Kong? Is there like more regional integration? Because I think it was I think it was referring to Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta when, or at least I quoted him as such when I quoted Kulhas in the generic city that like you know instead of building infrastructure now to coordinate cities, you built it to mess with your rival next door. You know, like the, these kinds of things. How, how is Hong Kong perceived by its mainland? neighbors slash rivals now like Shenzhen and Dongguan and Guangzhou. Yeah, the, the integration is definitely already happening. When you when you plan infrastructure out, you're you're thinking like fifty years ahead. It's a very long term vision that you need to have. So I'm I'm sure those planning the MTR, for example, the our Hong Kong subway system is already thinking about what Hong Kong and Shenzhen will look like in 50 or 100 years from now, where essentially it will become merged into, I think, a larger city, which is part of the larger Greater Bay Area uh, master plan that you've probably heard a lot about, which is to link all these various metropolises in, around the Bay Area into a, a super metropolis or a region. So for sure, uh, Hong Kong, while being a separate political system um, on, a, on an infrastructural level, I think it's, it's much more uh, unified, at least when it comes to the planning of, of, of what's to come. There are two major developments in the works right now in Hong Kong. One is the Lantau. They're, they're trying to build this massive uh, rec- reclaimed island off of Lantau, which is one of the islands. Uh, that would house, uh, w- with a plan to house many people. Um, and then the other one is to build this massive development, a, a northern metropolis uh, right near the border, northern border of Hong Kong, which I think will then bring Hong Kong closer with the mainland through infrastructure, through development, and create these corridors that link Hong Kong with the rest of the Greater Bay Area. So that development is already underway. You can see a lot of that happening with the eviction and demolition of a lot of existing villages up in the north, as well as new towers that are already going up, which is also the subject of what I look a lot at um, in my work, which is the changing landscape of of the, the northern border uh, that, that's shared between Hong Kong and Shenzhen, what that means uh, to this area which we call the Northern New Territory. Um, but for sure, infrastructure has always been one of the ways in which um, that, that ties in um, with broader visions about uh, unification, uh, integration, and, and you see that not just in Hong Kong, but also in the way in which China has been using development of infrastructure uh, in, in places like Africa, where right that is the centerpiece of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is to use infrastructure to bring other countries closer in, within, in the sphere of China. Yeah, I find that 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 export model rather interesting. Um, it's stepping back a, a second to um, the, the 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 MTR, which is the Mass Transit Railway. Um, 
the, the word is that uh, it is the only, I don't know if it's the only, but it's one of the most profitable transit systems in the world. And this comes from, I believe, two sources. One, of course, is the fact that they own real estate above their stations and thus can sell off that real estate for development. And the other that I don't know if, if as many people know about, but if you go around the world, especially Asia, you will find that many systems look suspiciously like the MTR right down to the typography. And that is because the MTR actually operates those systems on behalf of uh, those Asian cities, including Singapore. Um, so it's quite interesting um, to see how they've turned it into an export industry as well as a real estate development. Yeah, you can see that MTR is right. Like you said, is also a, a, an operator or a man. They, they do a lot of the management for other infrastructure systems uh, globally. But that just because they do that doesn't mean that the model or their revenue or the model is the same uh, because Hong, I don't think you can repeat what MTR has done in Hong Kong in, in the same way as you can in, say, Sweden or in other countries that do not have such high property prices, right? And, and where maybe, say, in, in other cities, MTR is simply an operator and not a developer where they don't actually run the property around that. So, so then they wouldn't have the same amount of high revenue that they would get in Hong Kong um, in other places. It's a, it's a very interesting model. Um, but I'm just not sure how easy it is to replicate that same um, model in other places uh, without the same density that Hong Kong has. Right, and I had a pretty, I have a, yeah, I had a clear understanding that those were two separate operations. I just sort of, sort of thought it was remarkable that um, they managed to do both successfully um, because you look at transit systems, particularly in the United States, which are usually entirely publicly owned and they can't seem to even basically deliver transit. So it's quite quite stunning that not only is MTR ineffective at running its own transit operation, it's also an export uh, model and they're a real estate developer. Um, I mean, that, that probably is not necessarily just owing to the management new of those who run the company, but, but to the specific structural conditions of land use in Hong Kong, probably. Um, I guess another question was going to be, uh, you mentioned about the, the dynamic of, you know, how land is released from the, the land bank, if, uh, for lack of a better term, that, that the Hong Kong government uh, runs. I, one phenomenon that I talked about a lot in, in, in mainland China, which is, you know, why are they always building so many skyscrapers that have no tenants? And, you know, the, the dynamic's a little different, but, I, but I, I don't quite understand if it's the same as in Hong Kong, which is that, to, to me, like, the way that, that China is run seems like a big corporation. So, you know, you've got all these, you know, we don't have, they don't have democratic elections, obviously, so you've got all these mayors who are in fourth or third tier cities uh, who want to get promoted within five or six years to run a bigger city, and then a bigger one, and then hopefully get into the national government somehow. Uh, and in order to, to do that, they need to show results to the boss. They need to show results to management. And there's no property tax in the way we think of it. So instead of levying property taxes, they do these one-time land leases for 999 years to these giant developers who then build as much as they possibly can on that land 
as a way of developing labor, uh, a labor market, but also as a way of, of you know, a huge infusion into the city's uh, coffers, you know, at once, so that the mayor can then put, point to that work and say, look, I brought in all this work, I brought in all this revenue, never mind, it's the, the fact that these are all empty is going to be the next mayor's problem. So I'm wondering if there's a similar dynamic in Hong Kong or if it's different. Um, it's driven a lot. I think maybe in Hong Kong, and I'm, I'm no economist or expert on this topic, especially on the mainland side, but I think Hong Kong would be somewhat different because there is a huge demand for housing. If anything, what's lacking in Hong Kong is not empty apartments, although those exist because of you know the lack of vacancy tax and so on. But but that, you know, there's just property prices too high and too many people are, are, are locked out of being able to afford buying their first homes. Thereby, there is a lot of demand for new development that's not so much driven by debt. I think in China, mainland China, uh, a lot of these projects, it was how China was able to grow a lot with, are these debt-driven infrastructural projects that um, I think now they're starting to realize is becoming a big risk um, in their economy. And you can see that they're trying to slow down or cool down these measures of development. Um, but I don't know if that is the same in Hong Kong as, as the uh, issues are somewhat different. Um, and, and I think that also points to perhaps why Xi, Xi Jinping had that new policy uh, I think several years back, banning the development of super tall towers for for this very reason is basically these cities were so addicted to building, binge building um, at the risk of the economy um, and, and re too reliant on these models of debt-driven projects to, to run the economy, which, um, yeah, could be a reason why that was banned. Well, and now we're kind of, you know, this actually draws together two other issues, which is, you know, colonialism and the idea of export markets, right? Because now that things are slowing down in China, they're looking for new markets for all this expertise that they've built up, uh, you know, in constructing massive infrastructure, and they're taking it to Africa. And they're taking it under certain terms that some would regard as colonialism. Um, some people... There's a phrase for it, I can't remember what it's called, like a state capture, I think, where they will finance something, uh, you know, on generous, what seem like generous terms, build it, and then the country that they built it for, turns out they can't pay for it, like an airport, and then China takes it back and starts operating it and almost as a, a kind of um, a proxy, um, not in any real political or military sense, but in a sort of a, a way to get their economic hooks into the operation of that that uh, particular facility in that country. Um, so I guess uh, my question would be, what, what sort of things have you observed in sort of this new wave of, I don't think you can call it reverse colonialism because it's still Africa we're talking about here, but colonialism <laughs> by another, another party in a different way. It's, it's colonialism with Chinese characteristics, as we might say. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, I get asked a lot this question. Um, you know, is it colonialism? Is it something else? It's very hard for me to answer that specifically. One, because yes, there are certain projects that you described that exist where you know they were not able to pay off their debts and as part of their 
agreement, you know, China now owns some port, right, in, in, on the continent, which you could argue is a form of colonialism for sure, but you can't argue that every project is like that. Or there are also many kinds of projects that I've encountered that is different, right? Maybe the contractor is just Chinese, but then the funding and the loan for the designer of the project is European or, or local. It, I, I think first and foremost, um, it, it might be a bit too easy to generalize what China is doing in Africa, because I think from my experience, there are many kinds of projects so, um, that exist on the you know, it started actually very early on when over, they actually built a railroad from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania all the way to the Copper Belt in Zambia. And and that, that happened in the 50s. So there actually has been many generations, decades of, of Chinese development throughout Africa. And, and it's important, I think, for us to be able to differentiate how they're like to, to identify how they're different. Um, from decade to decade, as well as like to understand where China, what China is doing right now in Africa. Certainly, some projects are very state-driven, meaning like the development of in certain infrastructure or large-scale projects, um, like a port, might entail a lot more Chinese control or or active influence. But then there are also a lot of projects where the Chinese are just simply contractors to to um, to build a tower, right? That that is not funded by the Chinese. That is not um, really influenced by the Chinese state. So I think when we talk about whether it's colonialism or not, first, I think it's important to define what is colonialism, um, because that, that itself is something that can mean many things. If you're talking about like the traditional definition of colonialism, which I would think is like military force coercion, like Hong Kong, uh, then I don't think you could categorize what China is doing in Africa as colonialism. Um, if it's if it's about um, businesses, right? If it's about unfavorable loans as a way to 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 secure a, a port that now belongs to China, um, which is also a form of colonialism, I could agree with. You know uh, that that has been practiced before in other places. Uh, that's one thing. But then say if McDonald's, for example, if McDonald's opens a store in Africa, somewhere in Tanzania, then the question is, is that considered colonialism or is it just simply globalization? And so I think that's why it's very hard to, to answer whether it's colonialism or not. It, you have to look at like the type of project that they're doing as well as then arguing, okay, now that they're actually, you'll hear America, Biden, the Biden administration is talking a lot about doing development in Africa to, in trying to catch up with the Chinese in Africa. So then isn't that then colonialism as well? Like, and I think that's why, um, that's also another reason why I think a lot of the Africans I've spoken with, they view the Chinese in a very different light than how they viewed the West, um, both historically, because, you know, the, a lot of African, most African countries were colonial, Western colonial states. And, and they see the Chinese more as business partners. Um, so in a way, they, they view it, I would say, differently than how a lot of people from the West would see this issue as. Um, I think the takeaway for me is that I see, I mean, I see this more as a, as a, globaliz a, a force of globalization that's happening throughout Africa, which is meaning that, you know, the more, as they open up more to, foreign investors in other countries, um, 
you're just seeing the impact of, of countries like China being more involved with the development of their cities and infrastructure. I think the problem right now is that the Chinese are so saturated in so many markets and throughout Africa that perhaps there is not enough other players to give the local Africans a better choice of options. So um, maybe it's, to me, I think Africa, a lot of African countries would benefit from having many different foreign players uh, involved so that they can really get the best deal rather than just relying on, say, the Chinese for their infrastructure. Well, what, does that, what does it look like in terms of the built environment then? I mean, the, the title of your project documenting this is Urban Africa Made in China, and, it, and uh, your website those photos. I don't know if it's that project in Angola, but there's that sort of wildly heralded massive, uh, what was it? I mean, I forget the exact numbers of it, but, you know, but uh, Chinese contractors designing entirely large gated communities that were supposedly ghost cities that China had exported to Africa. What, is, what does it actually look like? Because, I mean, the whole, the whole you know, last decade or two, of foreign capitalist interests in in building you know shadow cities in China. I mean, I have met, I have met by the shores of the Red Sea the Europe the the Russian private equity investors who wanted to build like a gated city outside Nairobi that would be its evil twin and and, and pristine braids of glass, etc. I'm curious what else you saw there. Like, what is it? What is the urban? What are the urban typologies that China and other interests are bringing to Africa, which of course perceives itself and is perceived from the outside as you know, gigantic slums. I always remember Mike Davis's planet of slums mm. and like, you know, the, the sort of Dickensian tone, the way he described it. But obviously it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, I, when I first started on this project, I was before I landed in Tanzania, I was very interested in asking the question, what is China building throughout the continent? And whether it has any resemblance to what they've built in China. You know, China has undergone the largest and fastest urbanization in human history. And I, I was interested in whether they were exporting that same model to places throughout Africa and if they had any resemblance or connection, similarity to what was being built in China. The short answer is I think it's a lot more complicated than that because, uh, like we mentioned before, with the MTR model, right? Just because you build the MTR in Hong Kong doesn't mean it runs, you know, that they can export the same kind of model elsewhere without the same context, same density, and so on. So you do see actually quite a lot of difference between what they've built in Africa and what they've built in China, because the context is very different. And it also depends on, of course, going back to the involvement, level of involvement. Some projects are really state-controlled and influenced. And some projects are simply just the Chinese contractors, some which are privatized or private, saturating a market, um, finding opportunity where, you know, where they wouldn't be able to find back home. And so then, and then in many of these projects, uh, yeah, I think it's very interesting to see how they are very different from what has been built before. Um, but then it's also not so clear cut what is Chinese about it, because, you know, when you say Chinese, I mean, my title is a bit, the project of the title is a bit misleading because it puts China and Africa in one title, which might generalize too many things. But then at the same time, it's like, what is it that makes something Chinese in Africa? Is it the funding? The, you know, because say if they cannot get a loan from the world IMF or World Bank to do a project and they rely on these loans from the 
the Chinese that maybe it's the funding that allows them to these projects that makes it Chinese? Is it the speed in which the project is built that makes it Chinese? Say, because they bring in new um, technology or new construction tool machines that allow them to build faster than they used to be able to build before. Is that, is that what makes it Chinese? Um, I would say the last thing that makes it Chinese is actually its design, its, its formal qualities. Um, as in many cases, a lot of these Chinese, so-called Chinese projects are actually designed by Westerners or by local architects. So it's a, it's, I think it's more of a picture of globalization kind of taking place, which is that you see a lot of these cities being built throughout Africa, but they also resemble a lot of the other kinds of development that you'll see elsewhere in the world, gated communities, skyscrapers, towers, commercial offices. It's almost like we're witnessing not just throughout Africa, but in other places, just this, I don't know, universal condition of airports and free trade zones that, yeah, that is not uniquely Chinese, but perhaps the Chinese are, are helping facilitate um, throughout the world. Special economic zones are, I could argue, is one model of development that the Chinese has been using throughout the African continent that they borrowed from because, as, as you probably know, Shenzhen, Xiamen, and all these port cities were the first economic zones that China uh, established in the 70s um, as, as models, engines of development. Um, and so they, they also used that same model in some parts of Africa, like in Zambia, where they have established these economic zones with the same uh, idea that you know they could become eventually cities one day, perhaps like Shenzhen, but I don't think it's the same at all. You know, um, the context is very different, and a lot of the economic zones that I visited are are it's nothing like what you would see, um, <laughs> like that you would anticipate, like Shenzhen or in Xiamen. So um, it's very interesting to see both the the similarities, but in in, in in design or ideas, but difference as well as in execution and, and, and out the, the results of what was intended. I think one of the things that probably people react to as well is the fact that, well, actually, I'm not sure that it is a fact. I was going to say the representation that a lot of these projects are built by Chinese workers who kind of embed themselves on site for X number of years until it's done. And so it's not much of an opportunity for local labor. Um, I don't know how pervasive that actually is. Mostly I've heard about it in the context of like dam building in South, South America. But I'm wondering if that's the case with these new cities that are being developed um, in, uh, in Africa. And I, I kind of, it's, one, one's tempted to point a criti criticizing figure at that, but I, I, I feel like it's just, it's, it's, I, I feel like there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of a Western bias in doing that. I feel like people are just pointing. It's like, oh, no, they brought in all their own people. Like, really? What's wrong with their people? What's wrong with their people? Just say it. Well, or, or my favorite version of that one is, is I, you know, seen described that there are more Chinese in Nigeria now than there were British at the height of the empire. And I was like, I'm sorry, is this subtext there? Like, they're doing colonialism better than we did. I, I like... That's your criticism, but it is that, that geopolitical game when Janet Yellen and others are going there being like, you know, when you hear questions like who lost Africa, are we losing Africa to the Chinese? I mean, just the, the creepiest, skin crawliest questions of this, but 
But yeah. I guess, Justin, I mean, is, yeah, is it, is it, I mean, you know, also, but, you know, China is bringing its own domestic companies to this. And there's lots of criticisms that, like, the, the roadways wash away, that the infrastructure fails early in its life cycle. I mean, is there anything to that as well? I mean, is, you know, is the shoddiness technically true? I, I yeah. can't judge that from afar. Great question, because I get, you know, I, I, I would say first that I think from my experience, the news that's coming out from the West, not that they're necessarily wrong, but it's very filtered. There's a very large skepticism uh, from the West about what China is doing in, throughout Africa, which I think is, is, has some merit for sure, but I think it also comes from a, a large skepticism or disdain, skepticism of, of China in general. Um, to answer your question about the, the labor, I think that's actually one of the biggest misrepresentations of actually what I've encountered throughout the continent, which is that actually it doesn't make sense for China economically speaking, to bring other people to Africa to build buildings because the reality is it's much cheaper to hire local labor. So a lot of the projects that I visited on site were actually predominantly, uh, the, the workers were predominantly from, from, the, from the country that, they, that the building was built on. So a lot of local labor, a lot of them are very young. So uh, perhaps you could say a lot of them are not trained, but then... Um, but then they would be run by Chinese managers. So the structure of a construction site usually is like perhaps 80% local labor, mostly young, young men, and then um, maybe 10 or 10% of that or 20% of that labor force would be Chinese who would then be more involved in the management of these teams to, to build the site. Um, there is criticism, of course, that because the managers are Chinese, um, there is a lack of uh, transfer of knowledge and skill sets from from the management level down to the, the the laborers. But I'm not sure. If, but I think that's true for any company that operates in throughout Africa. That you know, a lot of there isn't just the Chinese who are in Africa. There are a lot of contractors who are from other places in the world um, who might get the same kind of criticism. But I also would say that uh, the Chinese are also teaching a lot of the, the 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 workers certain things that they would otherwise wouldn't have learned as a result of being employed underneath the Chinese. So I think the criticism that they are uh, bringing in their own workers and not passing on this knowledge to 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 these uh, to the local workforce is is a bit unfair. Also because. China has a lot of interest in bringing certain markets and industries to the African continent that would otherwise be too expensive to have in, in China. So, for example, in Ethiopia, they've opened a lot of factories and shoe factories. They, a lot of manufacturing has actually moved from China elsewhere, whether it's to Southeast Asia, uh, to Mexico even now. I, I hear the Chinese are, have factories in Mexico. And you're, basically, China's economy is moving more towards a service and um in the uh, service economy rather than a, a, what do you call it, like a manufacturing economy there. But it makes sense for China to, to want to pass on some of these industries to, to um, other places. And so it is a very good opportunity, I think, for, for local, for African countries to, to, to expand on certain industries and, and help them grow their economy. Um, as for the shoddiness, that's a very interesting question because you do hear that a lot. Um, but I think it's also somewhat misrepresented because um, 
you could argue you could attribute part of it to corruption, which is not exclusive to the Chinese. <laughs> you could argue that you know uh, corruption is endemic in many parts of the world, including throughout the African continent. And it might be too easy to to use the Chinese as a scapegoat for a lot of the problems that come emerge from it. Um, no doubt, I mean, yeah, certain projects maybe the Chinese do take advantage of the the corruption. You know, they 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 do. You know, uh, I don't know, embezzle money from the project. I don't know, but but at the same time, you could argue that that is the same. Criteria also being applied to other contractors who are not Chinese, or if this is just merely a, a easy way to scapegoat a particular group of people or or nation uh, for all their problems. Because if you do a comparative study of say other infrastructure projects that are being built by other people, I think you would encounter a lot of similar issues as well. And so I don't think it's just exclusive to the Chinese. Uh, a, a, a major takeaway from my trip in, in Africa is that perhaps it kind of goes down to the analogy, you get what you pay for, which is essentially, because I've talked to a lot of Chinese people about this in Africa, which is, you know, if you pay me $10 to do a project, you're, you're going to get what $10 is worth versus if you get, if I pay $100, you're going to get what is worth $100. I mean, that... So I think some it's true. Some of it is is purely corruption, uh, but I think part of it is also because maybe there wasn't enough budget allocated for the project to begin with, and the problem is that the Chinese are too willing to take on these projects regardless of how much they've been given, and so they'll do it, but they'll give you the quality that <laughs> you paid for. So I think yes, it's true. Part of it could be corruption, but a lot of it could also be because. Um, uh, it's easy to scapegoat the Chinese when, in fact, we should be looking at uh, what the local governments are doing, how much money they're allocating for these projects, and um, whether they also have part of the blame. Interesting. Well, we only have a few minutes left, and I, I want to go. I want to quickly veer to, to another style of Hong Kong export here before we adjourn. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the Hong Kong mixed-use model, which I just think of, of you know, just the elaborate stacks of malls and mixed-use offices and all sorts of interesting projects. Um, and, and, and a lot of the projects that Hong Kong-based developers have done across mainland China. So I think of Vincent Lowe, for example, uh, who famously outfoxed former President Trump in his real estate dealings, and, and Ronnie Chan uh, of, I believe, of Hang Lung Group. Uh, Ronnie Chan uh, did the 66 mixed-use projects across much of China, which I bring up because the principal architect of that was Cohen Peterson Fox, and Cohen Peterson Fox also did Rapongi Hills, and Cohen Peterson Fox also did Hudson Yards in New York. Bill Peterson, I asked about this once, and I could see him visibly turn pale because Steve Ross would definitely not want to want you to imply that Bill Peterson was bringing back everything he learned working for Ronnie Chan back to, to New York. But it is interesting to me because both, you know, obviously we have the whole ongoing crisis of single-use office buildings and what they become. You also have Hudson Yards, partly because, or probably mostly because it's brand spanking new, is actually where the flight to quality is happening. So my question for you, Justin, is twofold. One is, like, is there really a, a Hong Kong model of mixed-use urbanism standalone on its own, own form, or is that just those are singular projects? 
And if the answer to that question is yes, is that something that we should be seeing in like U.S. cities that are dealing with remote work as a way to bring people back into some sort of riotous celebration of mixed use in other forms? Because I've always found Tokyo style and Hong Kong style mixed urbanism on that plat on those big platforms to be fascinating and vibrant and interesting. But again, I was a tourist, so what do I? It's know? it's very interesting because it's the the whole podium tower typology that you find all throughout Hong Kong. It's it's so endemic and it's so commonplace that you almost get bored of it. Uh, I, I think for, for Americans, this might come off as a very interesting solution to, I, 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 get, I guess the problem in the US is that we, we don't mix um, typologies or building uses enough. And, and here in Hong Kong, we're literally stacking uh, commercial with residential on top and, and so on. Um, it's interesting when you say Hudson Yards because, you know, I, I'm, I haven't been back in the U.S. in a long time until recently. So in a way, I'm having a bit of a reverse culture shock. You could argue that Hudson Yards, for me, feels the most Asian in many ways by nature of its typology. It's like almost like you're entering into an Asian shopping mall. Absolutely uncanny. The first time I walked in, I thought I was in Rapongi Hills. And, and, it, and I bring this up because it does remind me there is a sort of Hong Kong urban form, which I've seen flushing out in Queens, where there's you know, new developments that feel uncanny like Hong Kong. I've never been to Vancouver, but I imagine there's probably parts of Vancouver that feel much like Hong Kong, at least part of the Cantonese diaspora, too. I mean, again, is that something we should emulate? I mean, yeah, Hudson Yards is spooky. I just had to interject there because it was like I had felt the hairs on the back of my neck rise. Like, I am in Hong Kong-style podium development right now, and you can you just know. The only thing they didn't have was that perfume that you smell in every single Asian mall that... I don't know what it is, but they're all perf- they all have perfumed air, and that's the only thing missing from Hudson Yards. It's a thing now. Uh, scent, scent design is something that a lot of developers have incorporated. And if you go to China now, actually, the whole shopping mall—you can't just build a shopping mall to be successful anymore. I think the retail developers are now they ha- they're challenged to develop new kinds of laws. If you just build a podium tower, I think in China, you're you're going to you know if that's not enough. Um, it's a very competitive world where the consumer require demands for more than the mall now. Uh, so it's very interesting to see what's coming out of China because I think they do have a very sophisticated retail environment. Um, but to answer your question, it's, it's also interesting in, in, in New York where a lot of the, the Chinese who move here, they, they love living in these new developments like Jersey City, in um, Hudson Yards, uh, Long Island City, where a lot of the new podium tower typologies are are being are developing, and perhaps it's again like this connection with with what's being developed in Asia. Is it good? I I think why not? I think from a density point of view, it helps you know encourage more uh, engagement, and 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 it, it's definitely more sustainable than you know building a gated community or a sprawl environment for sure. Will Americans appreciate it or like, do they like this type of density? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I guess we'll see uh, how Hudson Yards turns out and if, if people are into that kind of development or not. But I think there could be, we can really, if anything, we could move beyond the, the podium tower typology. I think there, I, it could be a very interesting design exercise for urban designers or for architects to to really consider is you know how can we evolve the podium tower so that it does way more than just what it does right now 
Hong Kong being such a vertical city could explore other options. But I think the problem with Hong Kong is that the regulation and the zoning laws are just so strict that it's hard to innovate. But you start to see very interesting typologies emerging from China. I know Stephen Hull was exploring that with, with his housing block in Chengdu. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of room to play with. Maybe not so much with this slowdown of the economy. <laughs> and, but, but maybe we'll, we'll see how, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how we can develop more than just a podium and tower. Um, with the lack, I, I mean, with the office vacancies that we have here in New York and, and the discussion about how can we turn them into, say, residential units or how can we convert them into a, for other uses? I, I think that's also a very interesting question that architects and designers should be having because indeed we do have a, you know, no one here is working in the office five days a week anymore. So then we should put them into better use, especially with the housing crisis that we have here in New York as well. And I think we could unpack an entire uh, series of episodes based on those propositions because that is the question that is troubling uh, architects, engineers, constructors, and urbanists around the world right now is what do we do with all this um, unused office space and what's it going to look like in 10 years? So um, yeah, I, think, I think we should be open to just about any model that looks like it works out there. Um, well, I, Justin, I really want to thank you for this. This has been at least as illuminating as our tableside conversation. And um, I would look forward to, uh, to having a few more. Look forward to be back. Thanks for inviting me. It was a great talk with you. <laughs>